Father, we are entering that time of year when we are encouraged to remember uh, the greatest miracle of all, when God himself became a man so that he could come and dwell among us and live a righteous life on our behalf and die an atoning death on our behalf and rise from the dead on our behalf so that we could be brought to worship the holy God. Lord, we acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we have no business approaching you because we are sinners. Lord, the only thing we have earned from you is your wrath, but we thank you for sending your son, God himself, and we thank you that he became man while still being God so that he could purchase our pardon and accomplish our redemption. Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to give you what you're worthy of in our lives, Lord, to do all things to your glory. And as we come to your word, may you help us to know you better, not simply to know about you, but to know you intimately, to love you and to trust in you and to treasure you and to fear you. Lord, may you do that work in our hearts. May we leave this place loving you more than when we came in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're wrapping up 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today, so you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're looking at verses 50 through 58. And this is what Paul writes. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable shall have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth of God changes your life if you know it. It breaks the shackles of our sin and it sets us free to live for God. And knowing the truth is more than just being able to regurgitate facts or understand concepts. It involves believing the truth and treasuring the truth. John Chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth. You can know all sorts of facts about Jesus Christ and still be enslaved to your sin. It's only when you believe in Jesus 
and you treasure Jesus as Lord and Savior, that he liberates you. If you know the truth in that way, believing it and treasuring it, it sets you free. And it's no less the case when it comes to the truth of the resurrection. That is a truth that sets us free to live for God. It's a liberating truth. And that is a truth that the Corinthians had come to know. They had come to believe that, and they had come to treasure that truth. But there were some in their midst who were threatening to steal that truth away from them and enslave them to their sinful way of life all over again. And as we've seen as we've gone through this chapter, is that these people were denying the truth of the resurrection of the dead. And their presence in the Corinthian church was risking chaining the believers there back to their old way of life. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 50 to 58, Paul is trying to make sure that that does not happen. Now, one of the problems that these deniers of the resurrection may have had with that idea was how does an earthly body come to be able to live in a heavenly place. To them, that idea was absurd, and it led them to reject that truth altogether. How can an earthly body come to live in a heavenly place? And last week, we looked at verses 35 to 39, where Paul addressed that objection. He showed in that passage that at the resurrection, God will both transform our bodies and he will adapt our bodies to their new heavenly environment. And remember, he gave two illustrations of that fact. Anybody remember the first illustration? Yes, the illustration of the seed. As God transforms the seed into a plant, so God can transform our natural body into a spiritual body. And the second illustration was how God has adapted various objects of his creation to suit their environments. As he has done that, so he can adapt our resurrection bodies to dwell with him forever. So that was how Paul began addressing that problem. As we begin our passage, verse 50, Paul addresses this problem head on. And that's the first point of the message this morning, the problem. What is the problem with the doctrine of the resurrection? Verse 50, Paul faces it head on. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul here states the problem, the same problem, two different ways. He says the same thing two different ways. The bodies we have now are flesh and blood, that is, they are perishable. And the bodies we have now, being flesh and blood, being perishable, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is, they cannot inherit what is imperishable. Our flesh and blood bodies perish. I don't know if you've thought about this lately, but the day is coming when every one of us is going to have to purchase a plot of ground in the graveyard next door. Maybe not this graveyard, but one somewhere, unless you're going to have someone drop you into the ocean or you're going to get scattered over a lake. You're going to have to deal with that because your bodies perish. And because our present bodies perish, 
they are incapable of receiving and enjoying what will never perish. If God brought us to himself and resurrected us, but the bodies we have or would have after being resurrected are no different than the bodies we have now, we're not going to be able to enjoy living with the Lord for very long, are we? Maybe we'll last a hundred or so years, but then we'll just have to be planted in the ground all over again. What is perishable cannot inherit what is imperishable. That's a problem. And Paul, as we saw last week, has already began giving us God's solution to that problem. But in this passage, he's going to elaborate on God's solution some more. But before we move on to see more of God's solution to this problem, I want to make a side note here. When Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we have to be careful that we don't draw too many conclusions about what our resurrected body will be from this phrase. When Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, I don't think we can draw the conclusion that our bodies will not be composed of flesh and blood in the future. Now you may say, but that's what he says. Okay, but we need to take into context what the whole scripture has to say about it. And we need to read what Paul says here in its context. We can't just rip it out of its context and make it mean what we think it should mean. I want you to think about what Jesus testified about his own resurrection body. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 24. We looked at this last week. What was Jesus' resurrection body like? Luke 24, verse 39. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he is revealing himself. He's appearing to his disciples who are having a hard time believing what they're seeing. Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit, that's what they thought they were seeing, a ghost. But Jesus says, Touch me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So we see right there that Jesus' resurrection body is composed of flesh and and bone. That's what he says about himself. Now, just because he doesn't mention having blood here does not mean that his resurrection body has no blood flowing through his glorified veins. Jesus mentions his flesh and bones instead of flesh and blood because when he invited the disciples to touch him, what were they going to feel? Flesh and bone. Since Jesus' resurrection body is composed of flesh, Paul cannot be saying that our resurrection bodies will not be composed of flesh. Because according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, our resurrection bodies are going to be just like Christ's resurrection bodies. Philippians 3, 21 says that Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 says that when we see him, we will be just like him because we will see him as he is. One more passage I want you to look at is Job chapter 19, 
just to reinforce this thought. It's thought that Job was probably the earliest of the books of the Bible that was written. Job living even before Moses. Job chapter 19. And this tells us that God was revealing truth about the resurrection even from the very beginning of the recording of the first words of God in Holy Scripture. Job 19, verse 25, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So he's talking about his death. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God implying that when he's resurrected, he's still going to see God from his flesh. Verse 27, Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll notice in verse 50 that Paul parallels the phrase flesh and blood with the word perishable. And by doing that, by placing this phrase in parallel with the word perishable, Paul shows that he's using this phrase the same way he's been using the word perishable all along. We saw that word pop up last week. And we saw other words used to describe the bodies we have now. In verses 42 to 49, Paul variously described our present bodies as earthy, natural, weak, dishonored when they die, and perishable. So when Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not saying that our resurrection bodies will not be composed of flesh and blood. He's simply saying that the flesh and blood bodies we have now, which are earthly, natural, weak, dishonored, and perishable, are not able to inherit the world to come. I thought John Calvin had a helpful comment on this passage. He said, quote, flesh and blood, however, we must understand according to the condition in which they at present are. For our flesh will be a participant in the glory of God, but it will be as renewed and quickened by the Spirit of Christ, unquote. Now, getting back to the problem, the problem that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God In verses 51 to 55, we see the solution to this problem. Building on what he's already said in verses 35 to 49, look at what Paul says in verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. When Paul says mystery, he's talking about a truth that was previously hidden from men, but has now been revealed to his church by Christ through his apostles. And the mystery that Paul is speaking of here has to do with the resurrection of the church. And in particular, how it is that God is going to deal with this problem that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 14 You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Jesus promises there. John 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What Jesus is describing there is commonly referred to as the rapture, which is a catching up of his people to join him. It's the rapture. When Christ comes to rapture his church, there will be believers who are still living. That is what Paul says in verse 51. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. He's saying that when Christ comes to catch up his people to be with himself, not all believers are going to be dead at that point. There will be some believers who are still living when he comes. He says that there will be believers who are still living at the return of Christ, and there will be many more believers who have already died. Whether the believer is alive or dead, when Christ comes for him, there's something going to happen to that believer. Paul says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will all be changed. Every believer's body, whether that believer is alive or dead, at the coming of Christ, their body will be changed. And as we saw last week, that change will involve transformation and adaptation. But what is that process going to look like? Is it a step-by-step sort of thing? Is it going to take some time like a seed germinating in the ground? Well, Paul tells us. This is him revealing the mystery to us. Verse 52. This change will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So the change will not be a drawn-out process. It will be instantaneous. The moment that Christ calls his people to himself will be the moment they are changed and given bodies that are just like his glorious body. The Greek word translated twinkling in the twinkling of an eye means rapid movement. Your body will be changed just as quickly as your eye can move. Well, how quickly is that? Well, you parents, when you've had little ones and you know they're doing something wrong, but you haven't caught them yet, you kind of look the other way and you wait to sense that they're doing the thing that you're trying to catch them doing, and then you look really fast and you catch them in the act. That is how fast your body will change. And the kids know that's really fast. They had no idea you could catch them red-handed like that. That's how quickly your body will be changed. And Paul continues by saying that this change will occur at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. Now again, we have to be careful not to draw too many conclusions just from that phrase, because when we hear trumpet, we often think of the seven trumpet judgments found in the book of Revelation. Revelation 8 verse 2 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And each blowing of the trumpet will bring another judgment from God upon the earth. And that word for trumpet is the exact same word as we see here in 1 Corinthians. But just because it's the same word doesn't mean it's the same thing. You have to look at the context in which the word is used to determine whether or not Paul is talking about the same thing that the Apostle John was talking about when he wrote Revelation. 
And if you examine those passages, you find that the contexts are completely different. So they're likely not talking about the same kind of trumpet. If you were to look up trumpet in a concordance, you will find many uses of it throughout the scriptures. And there are various uses of trumpets. For example, Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Just write that down. I don't have time to read the whole thing. But that passage, Numbers 10, 1 through 10, gives various uses for trumpets. One use is for gathering or summoning the people of Israel together. Another use for blowing a trumpet was to tell the Israelite camps when to move out. Another use was for sounding an alarm during a time of war. It was also used for marking special feast days in Israel. Other scriptures record trumpets as being used in the worship of God. And if you have your pen handy, write down Isaiah 27, verse 13. Isaiah 27, verse 13, and Matthew 24, verse 31. Those two passages both speak of a trumpet that will be blown in the future after the time of great tribulation when God will gather believing Israel to himself again. Another passage is Joel 2, verse 1. That speaks of a trumpet being blown to mark the coming of the day of the Lord a time of terrible judgment. So there are many different contexts in which trumpets were to be used. The trumpet that Paul is speaking about is a trumpet where Christ is summoning his people to come and be with him. And Paul speaks of this very event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn with me to that passage. It appears he's talking about the same event in 1 Thessalonians 4, as he is in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is commonly read at funerals. Starting in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There we see Exactly what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15. Some believers will be alive, others will be dead at the coming of Christ. He's saying the same thing here. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 14. I will come to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture. In verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we see that resurrection event also marked by a trumpet. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes it as the last trumpet. And he describes it that way probably 
because he's been talking throughout this chapter in general terms about last things. Last things. That is, things in history that will come at the culmination of history. Things like verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, when the last enemy is abolished, death. Or verse 45, where Paul describes Jesus as the last Adam who became a life-giving spirit. Here in verse 52, Paul says the last trumpet. And he describes it as last probably because it will sound the raising of Christ's people, which is the culmination of redemptive history. Paul continues in that verse to say, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. No believer will be left out. We will all undergo a transformation and an adaptation of our bodies so that our bodies will be fitted to dwell with the Lord forever and ever. Verse 53 says that this change is absolutely necessary. It has to be this way. He says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. It's the only way that our bodies can dwell with the Lord forever and ever is if this change happens. And it's interesting how Paul describes our transformation in this verse, verse 53. He doesn't say that our perishable bodies will be replaced by the imperishable. He says our perishable bodies will put on or clothe themselves with the imperishable. That's what that word means to put on, to clothe yourself with. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the individual who is raised is the same individual who was put in the ground. The seed that you put in the ground and the plant that sprouts from that seed are not two different organisms. It's the same organism. That seed you put in the ground is the same organism that sprouts up out of the ground. It's just undergone a transformation. It's like a caterpillar spinning a cocoon and emerging a butterfly. Nobody went in there and took the caterpillar out and stuck a butterfly in there. It's the same organism before and after, just transformed. And that's how it will be with the resurrection. The resurrected body is the same body that was buried, just transformed. That is why we take care to handle the bodies of our loved ones with such respect. And I really appreciate that about the funeral directors that I've worked with when we do funerals. They treat the body of the deceased with a very high level of respect. And in light of what the future of our bodies as believers is, that is entirely appropriate. Our bodies are not to just be treated as trash, thrown into a dumpster like it's never going to get used again. No, it's the same body that will be raised. It will just be radically transformed. And again, we see this in Jesus Christ. If we want to know more about the resurrection, we look at Jesus Christ. When Jesus invited his disciples to examine him, 
part of what he told them to examine was the nail marks in his hands and his feet and the spear thrust in his side. What does that tell us? It tells us that the resurrected body of Christ that the Apostle John touched on Sunday was the same body he leaned against that Thursday night at the Last Supper. It was just a transformed body. Chapter 15, verse 54, Paul goes on to say, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. When God changes us, and when he causes our perishable, mortal, flesh and blood body to be clothed with imperishability and immortality, then will come true what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 25, verse 8. We read that in our call to worship, but let me read verse 8 for you again. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's the verse that Paul is referring to when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. When all of Christ's people have been fully transformed and brought into conformity with his glorious body, death will no longer menace his people because it will have been swallowed up and done away with by the resurrection life that Christ possesses and that he gives to all of his people. In verse 55 Paul takes up the language of Hosea 13, verse 14. And using the same words that Hosea used, Paul mocks death. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now how can Paul mock death, seeing as how later he would succumb to death? Have you ever seen those videos of boxers you know, they kind of go head-to-head before the match. They put up their fists and they glare at one another. And once in a while, you'll have one boxer who begins to mock his opponent before they're even in the ring. And then when they get in the ring, the opponent he mocked knocks him out in the first round. That mocker is made to look like what? A fool. That you mocked the very guy that took you out not 30 seconds into the match. Is that what Paul is doing here? Is he being arrogant by laughing at the very thing that is going to take him out? No, not at all. How do I know that? Because of what Paul says in verses 56 to 57. This brings us to the explanation. We've seen the problem. We've seen the solution. Now we come to the explanation in verses 56 to 57. Paul says in verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In verse 55, Paul spoke of death as if it was a warrior or a beast looking to kill. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And back in verse 26, he spoke of death as an enemy, the last enemy to be abolished. And he's talking in this passage that we're looking at this this morning, how this enemy kills. 
And how is it that this enemy kills? What is the poison that death uses to slaughter its victims? In other words, what is death's sting? What is the sting of death? It's sin. Sin is what kills us. And what is sin? Sin is our rebellion against God. It's our refusal to live under his authority. And we see death's first victims in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted to come out from under the authority of God and live by their own authority. And they succumbed to that temptation, which was sin, and they died. Sin killed them. Death stung them by sin. And as sons and daughters of Adam, we continue to live as if we are our own authorities and we continue to die. Now, what makes sin so deadly? Why is sin able to kill everything it stings? In other words, what is the power of sin? What is the power of sin? Paul says the power of sin is the law. That is, the righteous standard of God. The law is the rule of God for your life. It's how your creator commands you to live. And he commands us to do what? What are the two greatest commandments on which hang all the law and the prophets? The first greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that if we do not do that perfectly every moment of every day of our entire lives, that the penalty for that is death. And that is not something God just snuck in. He was very upfront about that from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Look at, turn to Genesis chapter 2 with me. This was not in the fine print when God created mankind. He put it right out in the open in bold. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. There it is in black and white. If Adam would just trust God enough and love God enough to not eat from the one tree that he was forbidden to eat from, he would live. And if he didn't, he would die. If he didn't listen to God, he would die. If he didn't trust God and love God and go ahead and refrain from eating that fruit, he would die. That illustrates that the power of sin is the law because sin kills people through the death penalty that the law prescribes for the sinner. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Paul lays it out very powerfully in this passage. He explains how it is that sin kills you through the good law. Romans 7, starting in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? You might think that. If, the law ki- or if sin kills me through the law, that must mean the law is bad, right? Wrong. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Why? Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The power of sin is the law because sin kills through the law. Back in 1 Corinthians, verse 57, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death was undefeated until Jesus Christ came along. How did Jesus defeat death? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He loved God with all his heart with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself every single moment of every single day of his entire life. His life when he walked this earth was perfect, just as his heavenly father is perfect. And because Jesus fulfilled the law, the penalty of the law, which is death, did not apply to Jesus. Sin had no power over Jesus because it could not use the law's death penalty against Jesus. But still, Jesus went to the cross and he died. If Jesus fulfilled the law and did not fall under the law's death penalty, then why did he die? Well, he did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins of his people. He had no sins to pay for. He was paying for ours on the cross. He took the wrath of God. He took the death penalty that the law prescribed for our sins. He took that penalty upon himself. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to the cross where he bore his chest and he allowed death to sting him in the heart. That sting was meant for you and me. But Jesus took it on himself. Just to help us understand this a little better, did you know that a honeybee, unlike wasps and hornets, can only sting you once? That's because honeybees have barbed stingers so that when they sting you, it cannot get dislodged from your skin. It's stuck there ensuring that all the venom it has to give you is pumped into you before it's done. But that also means death for the honeybee, because in order for the honeybee to fly away, that stinger must be torn off its abdomen, and that results in the death of the honeybee. 
For the Christian, death is like that honeybee. Because it stung Jesus Christ and emptied all of its venom into him, it is now powerless to destroy Christ's people. And yes, the Christian will still experience death, but our death will no longer be a death blow. It's a death blow for for those who don't have Christ. Death consumes you and you go straight to hell apart from Jesus Christ, but not for the believer. There's no venom left for the believer because Jesus took it on himself. And because Jesus could not be held in death's power by virtue of his indestructible life being the God-man, neither can we be held in its power, we who are represented represented by him. Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he had paid that death penalty in full for our sin. And because he rose, we too will rise. That is why Paul could mock death and not be arrogant. He wasn't boasting in himself. He was boasting in Christ. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul knew that even If he died, he would live again. Because Jesus had conquered death, Paul knew death would not have the final say in his life. And the same is true for you if you know Jesus Christ. If you've turned from your sins and you have placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then when you are lying on your deathbed, you can look death straight in the face and you can say, Oh, death, Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can say that because you know the one who died in your place, who took death's best shot, and he walked out of his own tomb. When you die, your soul won't die. It will immediately go into the presence of Jesus Christ rejoicing. And though your body will die, it will die only to be raised up again and transformed into a glorious body at the coming of Christ. God has given you the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not something to be thankful for every day? He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I said at the beginning that truth is supposed to change us, that if you really know the truth, it will change you. And that's the same with the truth of the resurrection. Well, how is it to change us? That brings us to the application in verse 58. How does the truth of the resurrection change us if we believe it and treasure it in Christ? Paul says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because Jesus is alive and because the resurrection of the dead is true, therefore, Paul says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. If it wasn't true, you should just forget it. Leave the whole thing behind. Go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But because it's true, you had better take your stand on it and never step off of it. They are to stand firm and not allow themselves to be moved one inch from where they're standing. But stand firm on what? What are they to not allow themselves to be moved 
one inch off of. We'll go back to the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What was that word that he preached to them? Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. That was what they were to be standing firm on, what they were not to be moved from, the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul exhorts them in this way because they are being tempted at that precise point. There are resurrection deniers in their midst trying to get them to stop believing in the resurrection. Paul implores them, don't move away from that because that is an essential component of the gospel, the resurrection. You and I must never, ever allow anyone to push us off of the gospel hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you have someone in your life who's monkeying around with your faith and you are feeling persuaded by that person, you need to run as fast and as far from that person as you can. Do not move away from the gospel. Paul also exhorts us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ, he has given you a, a work to perform. If Jesus is not alive, then there's no point working for him because he's not alive to enjoy what you're trying to accomplish for him. But if he is alive, that means that the work you are doing for him is not in vain. You will stand before him and answer to him for the work that he gave you to perform and he will reward you for doing that work. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God does not save you by a life of good works but he does save you unto a life of good works. The life of a Christian is a life of laboring for your master, Jesus Christ. The Christian who does not labor for Christ is not a Christian. The Christian who does not labor for Christ is not a Christian. Now, obviously, I don't mean that if you're a Christian, you will necessarily become a pastor or a missionary and that your life is a waste if you don't do that. No. I mean that if you're a Christian, whether you're a pastor or a plumber, whether you're a missionary or a stay-at-home mom, your life is to be lived in sold-out service to Jesus Christ in whatever arena of life he's placed you in, obeying his word in your home, in your place of work, 
in your community, and in your local church. And as we close, I just want you to notice one more thing about verse 58. Notice that Paul says that we are to abound in the work of the Lord. He doesn't say be steadfast, immovable, always trickling in the work of the Lord. He says always abounding in the work of the Lord. Are you abounding in your work for the Lord? Are you loving God with all your heart and soul, with all your mind and strength, with everything you have? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you laying your life down for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Are you zealous for good deeds for the glory of God and the good of others? Are you striving to know Jesus Christ and to make him known to others? If not, then you're living like there's not a resurrection coming. You're living like you're floating through this life and you're not going to stand before the risen Christ someday to give an account for how you lived for him. You're squandering the full plate of good works that the Lord has set before you. You're throwing away the eternal reward in store for you that comes with living for Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully alive, and he will make all of his people fully alive. And because that's true, your toil for him will not be in vain. Let's ask him to help us not waste the lives he's given us. He will help us. Let's pray.